The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area. People who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn. and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn. I'm joined today by Heather Fuller, an attorney with Lincoln Durr, where she concentrates her practice in medical malpractice defense. Welcome, Heather. Thanks, Steve. You've had a long legal career, but one that's had some twists and turns, including an 18-year stint as a full-time homemaker. True. And actually, it was it probably felt like 18 years at times. It was a little bit closer to 14 years. And I only say that so that I can subtract four years from my age if people add everything up. But it was a long period of time that I spent at home. Well, let's start at the beginning of your career. And this is with the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. What did you do there? I worked in the civil division in the torts branch, defending the United States in mostly medical malpractice cases. So these are physicians who are employed by the federal government? Correct. Anytime you sue the United States, you have to, or anytime you sue pertaining to care provided by somebody in a VA hospital, a public facility, any of the military branches, they would have to name the United States as a defendant. And those were the cases that we got. Now, a lot of lawyers, when we start out in our career, they kind of break us in slowly, right? You, you work under the close supervision of a supervising attorney, and maybe after uh, several months, they'll let you attend a meeting, and then maybe after a few years, they'll let you take a deposition. But that was not your experience at DOJ, right? It was more of the training program was more along the lines of hand you a file and wish you the best. That's absolutely true. Literally handed me a file as I walked in the door, and you start litigating day one. So how was that for you? I, obviously, you're drinking through a fire hose. You're having to figure out sort of on the fly. What was that experience like for you? Are, you? are you the kind of person who relishes that and thrives in a high-stress environment like that? Or did you, did, did you encounter a lot of sleepless nights? No, I think I had age on my side. So as a 25-year-old, I really didn't understand the magnitude of what I was doing. The fact that I would walk into federal district court and say, I'm representing the United States. In retrospect, I can't believe that they let me do that. Now, I will say they don't give you a file and say goodbye. They give you plenty of support, lots of training. You have a lot of resources. And I was surrounded by a pool of highly intelligent, highly intelligent, capable individuals who taught me so much very quickly. So it really was an ideal 
circumstance to learn how to litigate? I had a bit of a similar experience as a small firm type of guy, sort of kind of jumping into the deep end without a whole lot of preparation and a little bit of supervision, but sometimes maybe I would have liked to have had more. But what happens, I think, out of sheer necessity is you just figure things out and you just get better. But but there's no substitute for experience. And when you're starting, you don't have any experience. And so you're not as good at this in the first six months as you are many years down the road. And I wonder, looking back, if, if you recall some experiences that you had where you had to learn some things the hard way, but you learned them and you learned them well. I'm sure that happened. But again, I felt like I was so naive as to the whole world I was entering. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that that helped me because I didn't have any fear. I had plenty of confidence. I thought if the Department of Justice is going to hire me, clearly I'm qualified. I can do this job. And so I went in there and just did it. And I'm sure I made mistakes along the way. But as you know, that makes you a better attorney. It makes you a better person. We all learn from our experiences. And if we're smart enough, we learn how to evolve from that original starting point. And so I would say six months, a year of experience at the Department of Justice was probably like five to 10 years in private practice. I did everything from the very beginning, start to finish. And you, you have no choice but to get better very quickly. Did you have the same role the whole time or did your job change while you were there? It really, it really didn't change. I mean, I was starting out, like I said, right out of law school, 25 years old. I was basically doing what attorneys in the office who are my age now were doing. Probably not as well as they were doing it, but I was still doing it. Yep. Well, you got you to gotta figure it out. You learn by doing. And you, at some point, start a family and you started thinking about making a change and leaving the practice of law for a while. What was that process? Well, I would say that part of the reason I stayed out 14 years is because it really was not a process. Unlike other areas in my life, I didn't think it through. I just jumped in and it was fine. It was great. It's what I wanted to do. I realized that the type of law I was practicing did not lend itself to be a part-time job. So I was all in or I was all out. I decided to be all out without giving too much thought as to how long I would be out. And even if I wanted to go back and what that path would look like. Instead, I stepped back. I had three children. And before I knew it, 14 years had gone by. And at that point, I decided I really do want to go back and practice law. But I realized without having that plan in place, it was not going to be an easy transition. So you left the DOJ before you had your first child? I left right when I had my first child. And then so, but while you're in between legal jobs, right, during that 14-year period, you certainly were keep finding ways to keep busy, right? You, you did you devoted yourself to motherhood in full, right? And you you kept really busy outside of the home as well. And I wonder what experiences you had during those 14 years that you still carry around with you and that inform your life and practice today. Sure, I think that I am not the type of person that can just sit down and do nothing for extended periods of time. So while my children kept me busy, I 
really needed a little bit more than just that. So I poured myself into their schools. I was on PTAs, PTOs, that type of thing. And anytime I found the opportunity to do something that would allow me to do more than just sitting home while they were in school, I jumped at the opportunity. So I'll give you one example. I have my youngest is a son and he played tennis when he was in middle school. He he was in public school in Charlotte and they don't have tennis teams at the middle school level, but that was his sport. So I created a tennis team that was almost like a club and got on the phone and called all the private schools and set up matches with them. And so it wasn't really a conference match for them, but they were happy to play us. And so they ended up having a full season. He played all three years he was there. And when I left, it was still continuing. So I felt like I was able to do things that were making a difference, which was really my end goal. Where are you geographically located at this time? You started, you're in Washington, D.C. at DOJ, right? Right. That's where I was when I stopped working, had my first. We were still living there when I had my second. We moved to Arizona for a period of time. I had my third. And then we found our way to Charlotte. So I was in Charlotte when I decided I wanted to go back to work. What brought you to Charlotte? My husband went to UNC. And he said, let's move there. If the kids go to UNC, it's in-state tuition. Oh, okay. So we did. <laughs> well, okay. Have the kids gone to college? Is two, two went to UNC. Okay. And one is in med school now there. All right. Fantastic. In-state tuition. It, the plan worked. The plan worked. Yeah. And you've got a, a, a full household of Tar Heels fans, which I'm that's sure right. your husband is very pleased about. That's right. All right. Well, that's wonderful. It's nice when the plan works out. So when did you come back to Charlotte or to Charlotte? I would say it's probably been about 15 years. Okay. All right. So you've you've been here long enough to see a lot of changes around sure. Charlotte and to be through phases of life in Charlotte. Your kids went, were they young, young kids? or were, I guess they were a little bit old, they, but they went to high school in Charlotte. At, they at did. Least, right? Our youngest was in first grade when we moved here. So yes, we had, we experienced all levels of the schools here. So how did you then... How did you first start thinking, you know, I'd like to start get back into the profession? You know, I honestly don't know how one day I I felt like I was, I woke up and I said, you know, I think I want to go back to work. Why did it take me this long to think about it? And then I was terrified as to how I would actually do that. The biggest obstacle outside of the confidence of not having worked for so many years and feeling like I could actually practice law again was the fact that I was licensed in New Mexico only, where I went to law school. When I worked at Justice, you just needed to be licensed licensed in any state to be in federal court. And I had, I had kept up with my license to the extent that I was inactive. I could act, reactivate it at any point in time, but I did not meet the requirements in North Carolina to waive in because I had not practiced in, and when you in the say most wave years. in, that phrase means that if you're a licensed attorney in one state and you move to another state, under certain circumstances, you can essentially transfer your law license, Correct. right? But if you're not eligible to wave in, and I think I know where you're going with this, what do you have to do? That's right. You have to you have to do one of two things. You have to find a position in the legal field that doesn't require you to be licensed in this state, few and far between 
those jobs you difficult to find. The second thing you do is you take the bar exam. Well, let's talk about the bar exam. I think a lot of the listeners of the Charlotte Ledger podcast have heard the phrase and they know that it's something that lawyers have to do at some point. But people who haven't taken the bar exam may not know exactly what's required because when you it's it's almost like when you're just trying to decide what to do, the fact that you would have to take the bar exam is is a factor in deciding if you even want to pursue this career path, right? I mean, it's an undertaking. It is an undertaking. But again, when I took it the first time, I was 25. I was right out of law school. It didn't occur to me that it wasn't something that I would be unable to do. I took it. I took a bar review course like most people took. And I wasn't doing anything else but studying for the bar exam. And I passed it. When I took it the second time, I had three children at home. I was working. And I did not take a bar review course. So I was studying in Panera's, waiting for my kids to get out of soccer practice, and doing online tests. And it was so daunting. And I was absolutely convinced that I did not pass when... I had to walk into that room and sit across the table from, you know, just graduated law students that were closer to my daughter's, my oldest daughter's age than my age. They had that same attitude that I had the first time I took it. They just, they had no cares in the world. I'm sitting there thinking, this is everything for me. If I don't pass this, I am not going, I'm not going to be able to practice law again. And I felt like there was so much pressure on me that really was self-imposed. It's what I wanted to do, but this was the obstacle. And so when I left the bar exam, I distinctly remember calling my husband as I was driving back from Raleigh and he said, how was it? And I said, I don't even know if I finished. It was, I'm, I feel like I'm dizzy. I don't know if I should be driving. Can you find out when the next deadline is to sign up for the February bar. I was convinced I didn't pass it. I know exactly what you mean. It's so it's so emotionally, it's such a fraught experience. It's so emotional. There is so much pressure. And you're, you're talking to somebody who did take it right after law school finished. I respectfully disagree <laughs> with the thought that there was no pressure <laughs> or that it was, you know, like not a care in the world. I mean, I, I had a lot of care <laughs> about that. I had a job lined up that was everything hung in the balance about passing that test. I, I appreciate, I think what you're getting at when you talk about the recent law grads, like, cause what we did was we graduated and then we all took the bar review course having nothing else to do because we didn't have jobs and we didn't, most of us didn't have kids. Right. right. And so we could, we could really devote ourselves to it. That was kind of the only thing that we had to be doing at right. that time. So, but let's talk about what the bar exam actually is. Right. And so in North Carolina, two days, right. And so when I took it, it was two days. And the first day was, there's a, a I don't know, 25 subjects or something that might be on it. Uh, right. There's a, a bunch of subjects that might be on it. There's a handful of subjects that are definitely on it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was hard. Okay. It was hard. <laughs> this is the thing I think people need to understand. Is that this multiple choice test is set up to trick you every possible way That's that right. it can. <laughs> well, I think that what you don't really appreciate till you start learning about it is it is not choose the correct answer. It's ch- choose the best answer. And I think that almost becomes harder after you have practiced law because we're trained to, to, to really figure our way out of a box. I could argue any of them are the best answer. 
So I had to kind of remove that and think like the writers of these questions and choose what I think they thought the best answer was. For the essay questions, you have studied, I don't know, 20, 20 subjects, so, something right. like that. And how many are on it? Like six or eight? six. So you've studied a whole bunch of stuff that turns out it's not even going to be on the test. That's right. And, and you, you start reading the questions and you answer the questions as best you can. That's right. right. And, and, but this time you're typing, typing, typing before you were writing in the blue books like you would in law school. Now it's all on the computer, which... I mean, it's probably fine. I liked that. I probably could write more than I could the first time. And then you walk out and it's done. You upload the file. And then what do you do? You sit around and wait for weeks. You do. I mean, I think it's maybe like six weeks, something like that. And in the interim, I also had to take the ethics bar. I did too. I didn't get it done before, so I took it after. And then the envelope comes. Because even though it's still, you, know, you do everything on the computer now, the results, at least at the time, still were mailed to you. So I signed up for informed mail so I knew the day it was coming. Literally sat waiting to, to see the mail truck come up and ran and got the envelope and ripped it open. And, and I read that I passed, but I, it, it didn't compute so I yelled for my husband to come and read the letter out loud. And I think I asked him maybe four or five times, are you sure? Did it say I passed? I, I just couldn't, I really couldn't believe it. Well, there's a lot of great things about passing the bar exam, but one of the best things about it is you don't have to take it again. That's right. Because it is just so, so unpleasant <laughs> in every way. Mm -hmm. It's such an ordeal, but you made it. You, you I made got through, it. Did you already have a job kind of lined up? or did I you... did. I was working at the time, so I was able to, to really practice law then. So it was great. I mean, passing by itself, I felt like that was an accomplishment for me given the circumstances. And that alone gave me a lot of confidence back. I thought, I can do this. I can do it in different ways than I did before, but I can still do it. But then that confidence still has to continue to build. And, and I think we all get to a point where we realize, you look around and you think that everybody knows everything. And you start understanding, they, most people don't know any more than you do. You probably know more than they do. And it's just a matter of, believing that and living that and portraying that. And I slowly got to the point where I just, I, I really believed it and I knew that I could do this again. And I think the combination of all of that with the previous legal experience I had and just life experience, I think I'm such a better lawyer now than I was at the very beginning. You just really get to the point where you can just cut through everything. You get to the point very quickly. You can distill issues down to their very essence and you can do it all in such a better way than you ever used to. And I think that that's true whether you're practicing law or whatever you're doing. We just tend to, we just get better. We see things through a better lens. And I think that that makes us better professionals, better at our jobs and just better people. You come across as somebody who really enjoys the work. I really do. And I think because I had to really fight my way back that I have such an appreciation that I didn't initially 
when things come easily to you, you know, that's great. But I don't know if you can appreciate it the way you do when you have to work really hard to get there. Well, you've you've accomplished great things as a lawyer, both early in your career and then after a long break. You fought your way back. But it's not the only thing that you do. There's another really important line item on your resume, which is that you're a puppy raiser for Canine Companions for Independence. And I have to ask, how do you get that gig? Because I think that there's a lot of people that would like to have the job puppy raiser. Yeah, it, 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 it was a great thing. We did it once. My husband found this amazing organization and they raise service dogs and they place them with individuals who need them at no cost to them, but they need puppy raisers. And that means you get this beautiful dog when they're maybe about six weeks old, they're usually labs or lab golden labs. So ours was half golden retriever, half Labrador. She was bred in California. They flew her out to us. And really we did it for my middle daughter who was just an animal lover. She was a junior in high school. And we thought this is a great experience for her to be able to do something that she loves, but be able to give back in a meaningful way. And so it entails everything you have to do for a pet, but then an added experience for them in terms of the training and just getting them ready to go to work. Unfortunately, this, or I should say fortunately for us, unfortunately for anybody that would have been able to use her, our dog had some issues, particularly some sound sensitivities. So she was not going to make it through the program. So the organization decided that they would not send her to what is like a boot camp that immediately follows the 18 to 24 months of the puppy raiser's time. They go to this intensive training, determine what their specialty will be, and then they place them. She was not going to be able to do that. So the puppy raiser gets the first right of refusal to adopt the dog, and we chose to do that. I can't say I'm surprised to hear that. It sounds like it worked out well for everybody in the end. Yes. Well, you've you've accomplished so much in your career, and here you are at a place where you're being honored by the Charlotte Ledger for being one of the 40 over 40, for being a person who identifies a need and takes action. And one of the, I, I'm someone who's over 40 myself, and those of us who are over 40, the benefit of experience and a certain perspective. And one of the things that you have said is that your advice to younger folks would be that you know, you can take a break from the profession, but it might be a good idea to think about how you're going to re-enter and sort of what that looks like. And I wonder if you were talking to a younger version of yourself, what you would have said to yourself with the benefit of the perspective that you have now about that re-entry. Sure. And I have three children and I've tried to impress this upon them that you really can do anything you want, but you should do it with intention. And that includes taking a pause from your career, which I don't have any regrets doing that. My only regret is I just didn't think it through enough to put some of those safeguards in place to make the re-entry a little bit easier. I think in the end, it worked out for me exactly as it should have. I probably needed that test of taking the bar exam to get some of my confidence back and to find myself again as a lawyer. But I think you should still do everything with intention and 
be purposeful in your decisions and your actions. And that's something that I didn't do. I really did exactly what I wanted, but I didn't have a plan. And it doesn't mean that, I mean, I think sometimes you make plans and that plan is never going to work out. And that's okay. You have the flexibility to change the plan. But I think it's important to have a plan. And that is what I didn't do. Well, Heather, I think the world of your colleagues at Lincoln Durr, it's such a pleasure to meet you today and get to know you. And I can't thank you enough for being with me today on the Charlotte Ledger podcast. Well, thank you and the Charlotte Ledger. I appreciate it. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. Queen City Podcast Network.com.